This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Samantha Hedges, it's good to see you. All right, good to see you. Thanks for having me on. No problem. Um, so I'm, I should probably introduce you so that people are more familiar with who you are. I'll do a brief intro, and if you want to expand on anything, if I missed anything, please let me know. Uh, Samantha Hedges is a scholar of the politics of education, Heterodox Academy writing fellow, and co-moderator of Heterodox Academy's HXK12 education community. And you have articles at Medium, you have articles at Substack, which we'll talk about, and uh, you have articles in a few other places, including, of course, Heterodox Academy. So uh, did I did I miss anything? Is there anything we should add? You just got your PhD recently, like you just finished. Yes. So I graduated in December um, with a PhD in education policy studies from Indiana University. Great. Great. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. So, Feels good so to be done. <laughs> so you're on Substack. You just recently started a Substack. And what, yes. What sorts of things are you writing there? Yeah. So the Substack, so I sh- uh, initially I was doing a podcast and the podcast is called Edu Third Space um, for a variety of reasons, partly technical. I stopped doing that and finishing my dissertation uh, for a little while. And so I started a Substack. So I'm going to do something similar that I was doing with the podcast, which is focused on what is education. So I think of it more than just the school. So what is education? Where does it occur? And who gets to decide? And the who gets to decide part is more my interests, like policymaking, the actors involved in policymaking, which aren't just elected officials. Um, so getting into kind of also parent input and in education, things like that. So with the Substack, I'll just write about education broadly, as well as I plan on doing yeah. interviews that I will write out and kind of do qualitatively. So it'll be like a mixture of getting the question and answer, but also kind of a broader interpretation of the per- whoever the individual's perspective on education and all of those three questions I mentioned. Because um, I like writing. I mean, I like doing podcasts because I love talking to people, but that's the nice thing about doing interviews. You can do that anyway. And then I get to also write about it. Can you put a podcast behind a Substack wall? I'm sure you can. I mean, most people write but I'm sure there's nothing, there's no reason you can't put a podcast behind that paywall. Yeah, I've noticed that some people do that. So, so yeah, I've thought about like doing a mixture of podcasts and also typing up kind of an interpretive of the podcast episode or an interpretation of the podcast episode. Yeah, if I could find a way to make a living as a podcaster, <laughs> like that would be an awesome living, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it's... In my opinion, it's better than advertising. Like I'd rather have people who listen contribute than having to go through the, I don't even know what the process looks like of advertising, but it seems onerous and that I don't necessarily want to uh, promote everyone's products. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the hard part about podcasting, et cetera, is you just, you generally have to like, you own the promotion there. And I, I don't feel like I'm very good at promotion. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I do love talking to people. And I uh, brought you on because I read one of your articles at Heterodox Academy, uh, which we'll talk about in a, in a bit. But really, I think what mm-hmm. we're going to talk about mostly is um, this issue of civic education and what's going on in civic education, particularly in the wake of uh, racial and social unrest that was probably traceable back to the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor. Uh, Jacob Blake, etc. Um, but before we get into that, you also started in K-12 education. So you started as a teacher and then you went all the way towards PhD and in, in ed policy. Um, so talk us through kind of like briefly that decision to go from being a teacher to more, I guess, academic uh, pursuits after that. Sure. So my undergrad degree is in elementary education, uh, also from Indiana University. So after I finished that, I moved to Chicago and worked for Chicago Public Schools as an elementary teacher for a few years. Um, I left the classroom to get my master's in social work, thinking that I would 
move towards the social work route in schools. Um, because I noticed in teaching, one, teaching was not as fun and creative as they made it seem like it was um, when I was receiving my degree. So I should note that I, I started... Yeah, I started my undergrad in 2001. So No Child Left Behind was, you know, just coming through at the time. And so, you know, professors, which I think have not changed all that, like schools of education in a lot of ways have changed because of No Child Left Behind as far as how they prepare students. But it's still a very idealistic this is going to be, you know, you get to be creative, you know, come up with these lesson plans that are so engaging. Well, the schools I worked for were always underperforming um, according to, uh, you know, the metrics in place um, as far as state standardized tests were concerned. And so you had to have a hyper focus on getting results on standardized tests because that was how you got funding, um, you know. The teacher evaluation thing wasn't as in full swing as it is now when I was teaching, but still it's, you know, your your job could be tied to those test score results. So the hyper focus on that, it was very routinized, you know, you teach English language arts at this time in this way, then you teach math at this time in this way. And so it just wasn't, I didn't feel like it was serving kids well. I wasn't enjoying, you know, the way that I delivered. And, and I just noticed I was more concerned with the home lives of kids and how that was hindering um, their abilities in classrooms. And so social work seemed like a good route to go for me. But once I got into the school of social work, I kind of got more onto the policy side because we, you know, would take policy classes as well as, you know, individual group counseling, things like that. Um, and so I was like, oh, policy, that's where it's at. Like, that's how you make change as you go that route. So after I graduated with my master's, I worked for nonprofit organizations that um, were involved in policy advocacy. And the last one that I worked with in or worked for in Chicago was, uh, we didn't do, we did some work in Chicago, but we were mostly a state state level. And then I'd also go to DC occasionally um, and, um, you know, engage with advocate in advocacy with members of Congress. Um, and through that, you know, I was kind I became interested in evidence use, like, how are you making these decisions? Um, uh, these policy decisions based on what evidence, even advocacy organizations, sometimes because evidence isn't, or, you know, university research isn't packaged very well. So often we wouldn't have access to a lot of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I noticed that advocacy organizations weren't great at using evidence. You know, we would use what would bolster our claims. So I advocated for after school programming. So, of course, I'm always going to say that it's good and, you know, the state or federal government should fund it. So, anyway, so that's how my, that was my connection to getting a PhD, as well as my interest in who was making decisions for schools. So during my time in Chicago, especially when I was teaching, was when charter schools were really starting to pop onto the scene. And they were not always mom and pop. In fact, they were seldom in Chicago, mom and pop. You know, they were bigger networks that yeah, were starting right. them. Yeah, so it's kind of like... Yeah. So I'm like, well, who are you? You're not from this community. How do you know what this community needs? Um, but I'm, but at the same time, I was sympathetic because I worked in, you know, lower performing schools. So I understood parents desire to, you know, break the boundary of where they live to find a school that suited the needs of their kids. Um, so anyway, so the interest in who was making decisions for schools as well as how evidence was used is what led me to my PhD, which actually I got very lucky and worked for a research project that was looking at pretty much that exact issue. And so I worked, um, we did research in Los Angeles in New York City on how nonprofit organizations in the education sector used evidence to advocate for charter schools, merit-based policies, things that they called um, incentivist reforms. And then I continued that line of inquiry in my dissertation and I compared Los Angeles and Auckland, New Zealand, um, 
mainly to look at the difference in governance structure. Yeah, because New Zealand is a centralized authority as far as policymaking. Like they're all independent schools. So they're all of their schools are independently run, but the central government makes decisions as far as policy is concerned. And then whereas here in the U.S., obviously we have multiple ways. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So they like none of our schools are independent. They're all district. And then we have a few national policies, but it's really state at that point. Yeah. Yeah. State. And then, yeah. What the school boards decide uh, to do at the local level. Um, Yeah. So it was interesting there because I was looking specifically at charter schools and there's a big pushback against charter schools in New Zealand. They don't have the program anymore. It was kind of short lived turnover is more common, is easier, I guess, um, as far as policy is concerned in New Zealand. Um, So the labor government, which is still currently in power, got rid of them. But it was interesting because they already have self-managed schools. And so that was kind of like one of the questions is, well, why, why bring in charter schools when you already have that? Yeah, it's, that's just what I was thinking is why, why would it even occur to anyone if all the schools Mm -hmm. are already self-managed? in charters but did, speaking of what you you said something earlier about how charters usually are large companies that, mm-hmm. that are very at a lot of scale um i don't know if you saw there was this documentary show i think it was on like the tnt network and i'm totally blanking on the name but it was about a new orleans uh charter mm-hmm. school and i remember one of the subplots was that a local group of parents and teachers wanted to create a charter school and then this other company moved in and they wanted to create a charter mm. school. And needless to say, the company got the charter and the group of mm-hmm. parents and teachers, et cetera, did not get the charter. Uh, and that was an interesting, um, which I imagine happens a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. But yeah, I'm not surprised. New Orleans is, you know, there's lots of research on New Orleans because it's a very fascinating place if you're interested in um yeah, school governance, charter schools, things like that, because they really used um, Hurricane Katrina as an opportunity to overhaul their system. Yeah. So when you were a teacher, were you, what grade level, what subject area were you, were you social studies? No, I was elementary. So I taught fifth grade and first grade. Okay. And first grade, you're teaching like all of the subjects, generally speaking, right? And fifth grade as well. And yeah. fifth grade. Okay. Because in yeah. North Carolina, usually by fourth, fifth grade, you specialize a bit more. Um, mm. but yeah. Yeah. In Chicago in particular. Um, so when I, I graduated in Indiana or, you know, from Indiana University. And so my license was in Indiana and then that was K to six. But then going to Illinois, it was K to nine, which I was fascinating. I'm like, nobody should have me. Yeah teach freshmen (laughs) um but but most i mean almost all of the grammar schools in chicago are k through eight so it depends on what school you go to whether or not they start to split you off by subject area. i mean they do for the most part but um by sixth grade but still it's like if you're in a smaller school those kids get less opportunity to kind of see what a high school is like, which is often what middle school is like part of their, you know, what they do. Um, so yeah, I was in K through eight schools. Because, mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I ask about social studies mostly because um, looking at your heterodox Academy stuff, at least um, most of what you're writing about, at least currently is in the social studies area. And I have to figure that's because um, there's a lot of controversies in that area. And if you're going back to evidence-based, I'm sure there's mm-hmm. a concern about shifting approaches on how we teach, let's say history. Um, mm-hmm. Probably a lot of, it, it seems like we're, we're, we're making very fast changes without really considering what the evidence might or might not tell us. That, mm-hmm. that by the way, seems yeah. very typical in schools. It's just, it seems like schools, school and business are like the two areas that are just fad like let's jump over like whole hog into this area and if it doesn't work out which it won't in two years we'll jump over here we won't really look at the evidence mm-hmm. first I, it i've always been puzzled as to why that is but mm-hmm. yeah and a lot of 
uh, yeah, faddish things are innovative. You know, they're trying to be innovative. And so there's not always evidence if you're creating something new. Um, but yeah, we know plenty of things that don't get translated into how schools actually operate. Right. Well, let's go into some of that because there are two articles that I read that you did recently on Heterodox Academy. Um, the mm -hmm. first of which, which you did last year, late last year, was uh, called Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in K-12 Professional Development. And the later one, which you did in February of this year with uh, Sam Merrick, who's a teacher at an independent mm -hmm. school, is called Critical Theory of Common Humanity, the Case for a Liberal Approach to Social Studies Education. Probably needless mm -hmm. to say that latter article is the, is the juicier headline, um, but they both seem to relate in a certain way. So tell me if I'm wrong in how I'm characterizing the similarities in these articles. The articles really seem to be concerned with how do we teach and promote and foster diversity and inclusion in ways that are, that are um, kind of non-zero sum and maybe embrace kind of a common humanity mm -hmm. approach versus a very zero sum mm -hmm. kind of arguably combative way to do it. Um, seems like that's a common theme in both articles. I don't know if I'm misrepresenting anything there. Mm -hmm. though. No, you are correct. Um, so I'll say that since I've been working with um, the K through 12 group through Heterodox Academy, so just as a side note, Heterodox Academy has what are called communities. Most of them are discipline specific. Um, most of them are higher ed, almost all of them, except for ours really are higher ed focused. Um, ours is K through 12. So you could be working in the higher ed space or the K through 12 school space. Um, and so we have a mixture of members that are a part of that group that are, you know, just concerned with, you know, orthodox thinking in schools um, in general. And then they, you know, obviously hyper like are more interested in current events, you know, how things are going in schools right now specifically. So working with that group, it kind of has brought me back to my teaching days and how I think about these issues. And so that's um, Sam Merrick. I worked with him because he is a social studies teacher in high school. And, you know, both of us are kind of concerned with um, critical theory a lot of my work specifically, it's critical race theory um, and what that looks like in the school. So that's kind of how this article came about. I am not a, you know, I have experience with critical theory as being a scholar of the politics of education. I've used some critical theory frameworks in my uh, research, including my dissertation to look at policymaking and power dynamics and policymaking. Um, but, you know, when you're in a school of education, it's just like an interesting way to look at the world. And so you're experimenting with all of these different ways, um, just being a scholar in general, you know, how do we examine these issues? What's the best way to look at them? Um, and I hadn't really thought much about, like, how does this translate into, like, what if it left the academy and went into the classroom? Like, what would this look like? Because I didn't do practice-based research. A lot of my research was very theory, theoretical, like, policy making and what that looks like um, for schools. And so being a part of the um, Heterodox Academy K through 12 group, hearing what teachers were experiencing in the classroom is kind of what pulled me out of thinking of it as just a way to examine the world through a research lens into how does this actually look on the ground. Um, so yes, you are correct. A lot of my writing has been about like, what does critical race theory look like when it gets applied to a school? Right. And, and your concern, it sounds like, we'll, we'll probably want to get into kind of our understandings of, of critical race theory. Um, Cause it's a very wide discipline. Like there's, mm -hmm. you know, critical race theory, history, books of, of history using critical race approaches, works of sociology using critical race approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, I think probably even works of psychology using critical race approaches. So it's a really broad area. It's, it's almost more like a, an outlook more than it is a methodology, I, mm -hmm. I would say, almost. Mm -hmm. um, but it sounds like your concern is that critical race approaches potentially undermine some of the goals that they seem to want, which would be kind of coming to more increased transracial understandings, um, like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Really un undoing or, or lessening the effects of racism. 
um, which is a laudable goal, but it, it sounds like your concern, it's a concern shared by, you know, uh, a, a, a number of people at this point, that it potentially undermines those goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when, you know, an assumption of critical race theory, or at least the scholars who have been popularized, you know, over the past year, um, so someone like so Robin D'Angelo, yeah, Ibram the way it comes Kendi. out in, yeah, Ibram X. Kendi's work, um, is that the underlying assumption is that America is, you know, our society and its systems are racist. That just is, that's a fact, it's inherent. Um, and the idea of the dynamic of the oppressor and oppressed, because a lot of them are interested in power dynamics. And so, you know, who are the marginalized victims, oppressed, you know, depending on the scholar, they use different words for it. And so that mindset that the system is inherently racist and that there are basically two groups who, who exist in society. So then when you put that into a classroom setting, how does that affect the climate of work among teachers? You know, so that's the issue when it gets put into trainings. How does that affect the climate of the classroom if you have a diverse um, classroom? Or even if you don't, you know, like mm. how kids are starting to view people who, you know, by race, like how, how, how do they relate to, you know, if they have a white teacher or if they're in a diverse classroom or, you know, however it might be. So the, those are my concerns that stem from the underlying assumptions of at least the people who are being popularized today. And then you'll hear stories, you know, of schools like, sorry. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. And so then, you know, just stories starting to pop up of, you know, the teachers in the heterodox academy group would bring up like what this dynamic looks like among teachers and then you read in the news like you know the <clears throat> private school dalton in manhattan in new york city like having students white students bow down to their black peers like just how does this dynamic how is it helpful for education i guess was my like primary concern right so is there any research either from within Heterodox Academy or, or from without at this point on how, what the effects of such trainings are? Uh, or are we just looking before we leap? Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not steeped in the research as far as trainings, but, uh, or, you know, like the components of the trainings, I should say. So, you know, there's been quite a bit of research on microaggressions and trainings that train uh, about microaggressions um, and just the kind of broader suite of diversity, equity, and inclusion that there perhaps it causes more discord than uh, unity among staff uh, when, they, when they go through these trainings. So, yes, there's actually, I'm not going to remember his last name, but um, there's a scholar, his name is Musa. I believe he's with um, Columbia University. He's uh, actually um, written. Ex Musa Al Darby, I think it is. Yes, yes, yes. I think it's Yes, you are correct. Yeah, I can like see his name, but as far as pronunciation, I've never said it out loud before. But yes, I, uh, I believe I you're correct. The, I had the privilege of interacting with him at a, uh, a, a seminar event that I was invited to. And mm -hmm. he was also there as an interesting, interesting person to talk to. Yeah, so he's done, like he's dug into the research quite a bit. So he's written most of the literature for Heterodox Academy on this, like he's done a lit review. He's, um, you know, given advice on if you're told to go through these trainings, like how to talk to your boss about like, here are the issues that you need to consider about these trainings, whatnot. Um, and then there's been a lot of scholars that he, you know, obviously references that have done a lot of this work. Um, and so I, in my article about K through 12, um, DEI training, I reference the work that he has done on that. And then I also, for that article, interviewed a teacher who's gone through it at her own school. And so she provided kind of like the, this is what it looks like, you know, from a teacher's perspective, going oh. through this sort of training. Okay. Okay. 
I know there's also research, uh, I think the research on implicit biases, which seems to be mm-hmm. one of the core, I guess, foundational pieces of critical race theory, at least again, in, in its, I think mm-hmm. Robin D'Angelo especially relies on a lot of talk about implicit bias research. I know there's research, I think the, the charitable interpretation is that that research is pretty mixed and probably underwhelming uh, at this point, that, that when you look at implicit bias tests. And for those who don't know, I guess we implicit bias tests are these tests that try to find a clever way to, to, to measure whether someone has biases they're not aware of. So when I took them, it looked like associate, like they have um, a positive image on the left and an image of a white face on the right. And I, I forget how they tested your reaction as to whether those went together, but you click some button and then they put like a negative image and a black face and see if those fit together in your mind. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess by testing your reaction times to see where you feel discord, like let's say a positive image with a black face maybe, or a positive image with an an image of a seeming immigrant. Uh, If you have a slower reaction time to those images, it tells them that there's a discord there and that you have a bias, but it seems like there's, there's, at least as I've seen the literature, there's a challenge uh, in some of the lit reviews now because there, there's enough studies where you can do lit reviews suggesting that there's not only a question about the validity of these tests and whether they're measuring what they we think they're measuring, but there's also a, the big concern is reliability. Like if I take a test mm-hmm. one week, it might show that I have these biases where if I take a test the next week on the same thing, it might show that I don't have those biases. So it seems like there's something being measured uh, that's more than the implicit bias. Um, and I guess the third area, it seems like there's there's question about if you if the tests show that you have implicit biases, assuming validity, um, what does that say about your interactions with the world? And I know there are studies that suggest it doesn't show much, but I don't remember how they got that conclusion. Yeah, that was, yeah, so you hit on the two things, like, are they reliable? Because depending on the day you take it, it could have different, you know, you could have a a different response. And these, so, you know, everyone has implicit biases, you know, that's your, how you view the world is shaped by your experiences. Um, But what the leap that people make that might not be accurate, which is the second thing you're pointing at, is that you will act on them that they inform how you behave in the real world. And that is something that does not seem to be conclusive from the studies. Right. Yeah. I should probably point out to folks that I'm, I'm in this awkward, I I think I categorized it before we aired in this lonely middle space, which is that when I'm with people who are generally detractors of CRT, by the way, CRT is a lightning rod because you're either Mm -hmm. in a room with detractors or you're in a room with, with, defenders and it's there's Mm -hmm. very little middle ground and i find that so frustrating um but i find myself in that middle space right so when i'm with detractors i'm usually defending certain parts of crt and when Mm -hmm. i'm with defenders i'm usually saying okay but what about the stuff on implicit biases i mean we we if if d'angelo's work depends on that um that's a shaky Mm -hmm. foundation but so i guess okay so here's where i might sympathize a bit with uh, critical race theorists on this issue, even if we assume that the implicit bias studies are invalid or whatever, um, they're probably going to say, well, of course people, like you, like you said, like we, we do have biases that we're unaware of. It, it's, it's true. We're not aware of all, all, the, all of our areas of thinking, but they're, they're gonna say the only way we can address racial problems is if, people admit that they may have racialized ways of thinking and especially white people, D'Angelo would say, will never admit this. They just won't admit it. Like even if it was clear data that they do, they will never admit it. Therefore, when you, when you don't admit it, I, Robin D'Angelo or whomever's talking, I'm going to view that with a certain suspicion, right? Like, of course you would deny it. Um, so I wonder, um, you know, I wonder from a CRT perspective, if they're going to look at 
people arguing against critical race foundations and say, well, of course they're going to do that. Of course they're going to argue against this. Well, yeah. So that and then the Ibram X Kindy, everything is either racist or anti-racist. So if you're trying to claim to just not take hold either one of those positions, either you're actively doing it or you're inactively just not engaging in the conversation. Both of those two scholars have set it up in a way where you cannot disagree with them. And that's one of the things that I am suspect of is you can't have a conversation challenging them because yes, then it's your white fragility that is a problem or because you're remaining neutral, therefore you're racist from the Kendi perspective. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the Kendi's dichotomy between racist and anti-racist is an interesting one for me because at first when I read it, I kind of balked at it. And when I thought about it, I can understand what he's saying and I can understand why that dichotomy makes sense. But I also think that it can be used in very problematic ways. So, I mean, what he's saying essentially is that in a world where the majority of the inertia is on kind of white people in positions of of general relative privilege, power, et cetera, to not do anything to combat racism means that you're simply allowing the perpetuation of that inertia, right? So Mm -hmm. it might seem extreme to say, well, you have to be anti-racist at all times. But from Mm -hmm. that perspective where the inertia is to kind of maintain a certain kind of racial caste or hierarchy, you can see where it would make sense, or at least I can kind of see where it would make sense to say, Unless you are anti-racist, uh, you are perpetuating racism, and that may not mean directly that you are racist. And I think that's where his language runs into problems. But mm-hmm. you are allowing certain things to happen, especially if you know that they're happening. Um, I don't know, but I can see that, especially yeah. as language runs into problems. If you tell a kid, "Well, that means you're there, there you're therefore racist," mm-hmm. I mean, that's going to provoke a certain reaction. Or probably yeah yeah so from the like child perspective yeah you could create animosity in them or actually create i mean this is extreme but you know racist feelings because of the way if, if you're a white student you know being told that you were born racist that's something that you inherited just by the virtue of being born white And that if you're not actively working against it, that you yourself are racist. Like if that mindset is in third graders, eight-year-olds, for example, like I just don't see how that's helpful for the school climate, for the individual child. And then from a policy perspective, I think that's why we're seeing a lot of like, you know, schools deciding they're no longer to do merit-based initiative or um, admissions into their selective enrollment schools. If you simply look at policy as either racist or anti-racist, and according to uh, Kendi, if it's not producing equal outcomes, it's, you know, across racial groups, then it's racist. So then you end that policy. Okay, so now you've ended the policy, and maybe it was, you know, holding um, students back are not permitting ones who would otherwise qualify or not addressing what is actually the problem. But from my perspective, if you just simply get rid of that policy, like what have you actually changed, first of all, as far as getting better outcomes from students who are not performing as well? Mm -hmm. And are you sure that that policy is the problem? Should there not be other things? So should you not be looking at the inputs instead of solely focusing on the outputs? Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense because I was going to say like, okay, so a school's admissions policy, uh, if you are admitting sizably more white people by percentage of the population uh, than are in the population, you know, just again, by percentage, if you, if the, let's say percentages, 75% white people, I don't know, in the population, and somehow you're admitting 90% mm-hmm. of your students, mm-hmm. white students. Right, so if, if, if that discrepancy has persisted over decades, surely there's a problem. But like, so what you're saying is your point is, well, it may not be that you, the best remedy to that solution is to change the admissions policy. It might be to look at it if there are other structural things 
further back that maybe led mm -hmm. to those mm -hmm. outcomes. Maybe it's to do with poverty. Yeah. Maybe it's to do with um, people getting the impression that, you know, well, I'm, I'm a, you know, poor black kid. College isn't for me. Um, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people have said that there's kind of an almost an informational capital gap there. Like white kids just know, <laughs> like they, they're mm -hmm. told mm -hmm. about college opportunities all the time. And, and black kids have a harder time sometimes figuring out what those opportunities are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, social capital. Yeah. So, but you're saying it may not be the admissions policy that's the problem, and the fear is that uh, an anti-racist approach, in a, in a Kendi sense, approach might obscure what the actual cause was. See, I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah. Like when I read Kendi, I get the impression that he would acknowledge those things mm -hmm. because he says that one of the other dichotomies he makes in his work is that disparities are either because of like innate difference. And we pretty much know mm -hmm. that's not the case with racial disparities or they're to do with policy matters. Mm -hmm. And if you remedy policy, then you can fix the discrepancy, but there's really no middle ground. I happen to yeah. disagree with that, but, but I think he would leave room to say the policy the, the policies that led to those disparities don't necessarily need to be the admissions policies. They could mm -hmm. have been the policies that affected poverty early on or segregation or um, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so this sometimes seems like a landmine that I might be stepping in, but also like what's going on outside of the school, like the environment that the kids are living in, you know, what's going on in the home, you know, so there are some things that schools can't, you know, some people want schools to solve everything. Schools cannot solve every problem. So it, it makes sense to look at the policies and practices that are going on in schools because they have control over those. They can, you know, man manipulate, like, you know, that makes sense to me. Um, but, you know, also, I think larger factors need to be considered. But I think one of the problems, so both Kindy and D'Angelo's work seems partly, I think, was picked up because it's easy to read. It's digestible. It's not like, you know, scholarship that gets published in journals. Like it's for the general public to get their handle on. I think that's why um, those types of works um, people gravitate towards. But the, I don't know how much training has actually gone around. Like, what does it look like to decide whether policy is racist or anti-racist? So from an outside perspective, I don't work for these school districts, so I don't know mm -hmm. their thought process. But when a school district decides, okay, we're just getting rid of the merit-based policy, their inequities, maybe they're doing that, you know, for a short term until they figure out earlier in the pipeline what's going on. Or maybe it's just like, a PR, like we need to look good. And so let's just, you know, control what we can um, without addressing the other thing. Like that's one of my concerns is people aren't like thinking long-term. It's just reactionary. There are inequities that are obvious. Fix this policy right now. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that, that would concern me about fixing, let's say the admissions policy and the example we're talking about is even if you want to undo that, even if it's true that they're doing it temporarily to see what the mm -hmm. problems were mm -hmm. down mm -hmm. before that, and then they'll try to remedy, go back to the old attendance mm -hmm. policy once we feel like those things have been remedied, is that you essentially, um, I don't want to say hook people on the availability of that new attendance, like admissions policy, but you do mm -hmm. change people's incentives, right? So like mm -hmm. once you change an admissions policy, um, it's really hard to undo that change because whoever would have been, uh, had favorable outcomes under that change mm -hmm. at the moment you decide to change it, uh, they're not going to be very happy about that. Right. And, and they will, uh, for understandable reasons say, Hey, wait a minute. What about, I thought the rules were this can't change mm -hmm. the rule. Okay. So mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. that it, it would make it hard to correct that. Yeah. I, I don't know because I first of all I have to say we've been talking about like D'Angelo and Kendi and those are the two voices mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. for reasons you mentioned um, have have gotten a lot of of airtime. I really wonder and I don't know the answer to this. Maybe you have a better sense. Are those two voices representative of positions within critical race theory? 
because I've heard indirectly from a sociologist friend who will, I, don't, I shouldn't name the person, that very few sociologists, actual sociologists, they defend D'Angelo's position. That it's just very rare to see soci sociologists actively defend her position. So I don't know. Mm -hmm. I wonder mm -hmm. is, is she the is she an extreme voice here, or is she mm -hmm. really a representative voice? Any sense? Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a sense either. Um, I mean, being a recent graduate student in a school of education, I mean, I could say that the idea of whiteness was really, and being a graduate student when Trump was elected, I think was very, mm, like, mm -hmm. you know, the seeing the dynamic shifting in the school of education was interesting. So, you know, there would be whiteness courses popping up, um, more talk about whiteness as a, a critical race theory lens that people were starting to use to analyze things. So I don't know how popular it will become or has become, you know, I haven't taking courses in a few years, um, you know, because I was working on my dissertation for the latter half of my um, uh, graduate student experience. But so, so I'm not, I would guess not everyone aligns with that thinking. But again, there's the site, you know, the issue of the silent majority, if, if they are a majority, and they just don't want to be seen as the one that is critical of this idea of whiteness. They just, you know, nod, smile, and enroll in a different class, you know, like whatever. Um, so right. yeah, even being an insider in a school of ed where this is very popular, the extent to which you, that it is widely popular, I'm not yeah. sure. Well, uh, D'Angelo comes from a college of education, right? Her degrees, yeah. a PhD in sociology, but she has, I think her whole academic career been housed in mm -hmm. Uh, college of education, which which makes sense. I work mm -hmm. in a college of education. I see probably that approach more um, mm -hmm. than I would imagine in other departments. Um, now, you mentioned earlier that uh, you've talked to, a, uh, or, or I guess you've interviewed uh, at least one teacher who who's kind of been part of these sorts of trainings. So, what are the what what was that teacher's experience like? What did what did he or she uh, tell you about kind of what the perception was. Yeah. Um, so she, you know, kind of said like, as far as her and her colleagues, so her fellow teachers, um, were concerned, it was kind of like one of those things, like not to cast her and the teachers in a bad light, but something that you go and giggle about at the water cooler afterwards, because it was very like, talk about your feelings type of thing. Um, but also that her training in particular was focused on culturally responsive teaching. Um, and she herself is not white. Um, she is biracial, but neither of her parents are white. And so she just felt like it was very like the, the cultural responsiveness aspect was very flattening. So it'd be things like time, like, Oh, different cultures think about time differently. So these very like superficial um, blanket examples that they would talk about as how you should be cu culturally responsive. And you see those things play out. Like in San Diego, you know, they changed their traditional grading system. And part of it is this idea of time. So they're giving students more time to complete work because some cultures see time differently. Um, so that was one of the things she pointed out. Because as a former teacher, I'm pretty sure that, that, you can probably, you probably also have the intuition I do is, well, when you give a student more time, you're just going to kick back the problem. Instead of having a problem with them turning it in on Thursday, you're now just going to have a problem with them turning it in next Tuesday. Um, because it's just kind of in students' natures generally to kind of mm -hmm. procrastinate on those things, I guess. Yeah. And you're potentially like you're piling more work on that. Yeah. Yeah, you're potentially piling more work on them, too, because if another assignment comes up and they get an extension on that, it's like now it's the end of the semester and you owe me all of these things. So you've actually caused more stress in the student's life than, you know, alleviating stress. Um, so it was things like that. And then, you know, she talked about 
a lot was from her personal perspective that one of her parents is an immigrant. And so this idea that Western culture is this horrible thing that needs to be gotten rid of. And basically she's like, well, my mom would totally just, she would have never moved here had she believed that, you know, this was an evil place and that Western civilization was this evil thing that should be gotten rid of. And then from her, the classroom perspective of how the training was kind of translating into the classroom. So she taught at the time was teaching at an all boys um, Catholic school. So the majority of students were white and, you know, she's like, you can just see the animosity building between the white students and the non-white students in class and the white students getting very defensive about who they are, their culture, you know, whatever. Um, and that some of the, like, uh, I think it was the journalism classes. So the newspaper they produced, there was a lot of arguments over, um, what should be published in the newspaper and these arguments never existed before. So she's like, you can just see kind of tension building in the school because of, um, mainly this idea that Western civilization is this terrible thing that needs to be gotten rid of. Right. Um, and, and you're juxtaposing kind of this idea of, um, I guess, these these uh, trainings that seem to be kind of pushing people apart and making people maybe mutually suspicious of each mm-hmm. other with uh, what you call a common humanity approach. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the term you used in in the article, um, the February article. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, critical theory or common humanity. I was going to ask you, first of all. Um, is that potentially a false choice? Um, well, I guess why don't we go first into kind of the article and the common humanity approach? Because I guess what I want to ask you at some point is, is this, is, is, is your problem, is the problem with the critical theory approach more that it's delivered in a wrong way and it's maybe salvageable if it were taught in the right way? Or do you think that it's really the idea of it is not implementable in the way that, that you would want to see. So why don't we talk about the article first um, and what is mm-hmm. the common humanity approach that you're juxtaposing this to? Yeah. So um, just going back to what I had said earlier, as far as the critical race theory approach, it is the assumption that there is this uh, binary power dynamic occurring Um, where there are the oppressors and the oppressed. So if you look at it through, you know, if you approach students and curriculum through that lens, then are you able to unite students? So one of the things, one of the, um, we quote quote Jonathan Haidt in that article, and he he basically points out that, that you're igniting tribal thinking, where there are warring factions of a society. And so that is already, you know, we are already wired for that. And so what you try to do in a classroom or anywhere where people have to work, who are different, have to work together is you don't want to ignite that type of thinking. You instead, the common humanity is you acknowledge that there are differences, but you're looking for similarities so that you can work together. So the idea of mutual understanding is embedded in common humanity because you know we're a diverse society pluralistic that have you know looks that way in the classroom not just racial you know socioeconomic just the type of house you were raised in religion whatever where you know schools are very diverse no matter where you are in the u.s um, and so that you're trying to acknowledge those differences and the strengths in those differences but you are bringing them together for mutual understanding whereas in critical race theory if the assumption that you're pushing forward is that one, society is racist, you know, systems are racist, people are born racist by virtue of their skin color, are you going to be able to effectively create a a scenario in which mutual understanding is the most important thing? And Sam Merrick and I argue that no, a common humanity would be a better approach. Right. I'm trying to think about... um again, going back to Ibram Kendi's book, um, which was a really interesting experience for me because I've read it twice now. And um, I think I disagreed with parts and agreed with parts. I I don't think, uh, I I don't think I fell on one side or the other. Um, 
trying to think that if he were in the room, I I'm tempted to think that he would say that he is for a common humanity understanding, but he would say that to get to that, you need to understand that the power differentials that led us to this place mm-hmm. are as they are because we have a history and that history is racialized. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess my question, yeah, my question for him would be, okay, do the students need to be involved in this? So that's one of my concerns is, so if you're talking about systemic racism, do we need to involve the students in this? Or is this simply a, the administrators of the school, the policymakers at the state and federal level, they need to be working on this? Not this is not an issue that we're trying to concern students with. Right. So your concern would be if students are involved in this, that's where you get the kind of mutual suspicion and you maybe in a sense breed it where it wasn't there mm-hmm. before. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, you know, yeah. the consideration of childhood development, where these kids are at psychologically, like I'm just worried that there's not a lot of long term thinking in this, like how this all plays out in the end. Um, and are we actually going to solve the problems that we intend, like, are we going to help the students that we intend to help or will we end up hurting them more? So like one of my examples would be this recent thing with, um, the equitable math framework. Um, you know, I think the thing that people picked up on most is showing your work is racist, you know, things like that. Like I haven't read through the whole document, so, um, I've only like made my way partway through. So. I can't say how it all shakes out in the end, but are you, if this is your approach and if your approach is simply to, to undo policy, so to stop whatever program is in place, are you treating students like they are actually smart enough to do these things? Or are you treating them like they're not smart enough? You know, that's also one of my concerns is like, what is this? T- what are you telling students if you tell them that showing your work, like you, I shouldn't have to expect you to show your work because that has some racial undertones to it. Like, I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when it gets into the classroom is where I worry. Right. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine kind of what what the response would be about why people wouldn't want students involved in those decisions. I mean, the first response that I would think of is. Well, if we don't involve students in those decisions, there must be a reason we're keeping this from them. So that like, Mm -hmm. so I'm pretty sure the the critical race theory side of things would say, but why wouldn't you involve students? Because this is an issue that, that, I mean, all students are racialized in some sense. White students have the Mm -hmm. privilege of not having to think of themselves as racialized. But Mm -hmm. um, so like, if you have a certain amount of, of just cultural power that you're you know, your, your black student counterparts or friends don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they, they would probably argue it's probably good for you to realize that because at very least mm-hmm. you'll realize that part of the reason you're treated in, in certain quarters differently than they are might be because of kind of a, a history of racialization. I don't know if that would be the response. I, I'm just kind yeah. of guessing that that would be the response. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so and right, I think that's fair. Yeah. Making you hyperconscious and and saying, "Oh, well, right. I'm on this tribe, and you're on that tribe." Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know why there'd be any reason to think it would produce the one outcome rather than the other outcome. But then, to Jonathan Haidt's point, you mentioned if we are tribal by nature, so mm-hmm. to speak, mm-hmm. maybe it's more likely that that produces a tribal outcome. Yeah, I mean, I would agree that students, non-white students, especially depending on, you know, where they live, um, you know, what neighborhoods they come, anyway, just their broader background, are aware of these issues. And, you know, if they start to question, well, why is it that my school has so many less resources, um, like, for example, on the west side of Chicago compared to a school in the affluent north suburbs of Chicago. Like, they're they're not dumb, you know? You need to give them the benefit of the doubt that they can see these things and recognize these things. But yeah, I guess my concern is, at what age do you, the teacher, introduce that? 
Or is it something that as the students get older and they're observing it themselves, that then you start to talk about it, involve students, you know, do a little bit more reflection on it. And then the delivery matters. So it's not us versus them. It's a, you know, you're right in like the idea of um, social capital. I mean, I think that's very important in schools, uh, in some cases, much more than the letter grades you receive or how well you do on a test as far as like your opportunities. Um, So then you figure out policies to boost social capital or whatever it is that um, does cause disparities that a school can actually be helpful in remedying for. Yeah. I mean, I just thought of an example of, of, um, one area where kind of involving children in kind of the conversations about racism and racialization might matter just to throw them out uh, and see what you think. We're recording this on uh, March 5th, 2021. And I think a few days ago, uh, the Dr. Seuss estate announced that it would no longer be publishing six Dr. Seuss books because there were some images in some of the books that are pretty egregiously racially stereotyping. Um, depicting Asian people with kind of the slanty eyes and the mm-hmm. pointy, the cone hats, and um, depicting African people in kind of the the, the straw, uh, mm-hmm. the, the the straw clothing, and uh, it's kind of like animals or savages. And I, I don't know about you, but the the discourse that I'm seeing, and granted, it is more from adults, but I imagine kids pick up on it, is that all of the people who are like, "But what's the big deal? What's the big deal about these images? They're just images." Um, seem mm-hmm. to be white, generally speaking. I, I, I can't say that exclusively, mm-hmm. probably, but they seem to be white. Like, what's the big deal? These are just images. And, uh, you know, a lot of people who are, uh, a lot of the Black people I know are, are saying kind of the opposite. Like, if you can't understand why this is probably mm-hmm. not good for kids to see, that maybe because you're not really racially aware of our situation enough. I, I don't know. That just occurred to me as a possibility. Mm-hmm. Bit. Like, could it be that exposing kids to these issues would make them more sensitive generally to something like that? Or do you think to your point, like kids just aren't stupid, uh, would they come to that place on their own Mm -hmm. or the common humanity approach? I imagine a common humanity approach would find a way Mm -hmm. to address Mm -hmm. that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with young kids, Yeah, I think that if they opened a book, um, I'm thinking about my first graders, um, that they would be able to point out like, uh, you know, why, why does this person have on a grass skirt, you know, and then that could prompt um, a conversation. Um, Yeah, I guess the less divisive you could make it, the better. So I don't have the solution. I mean, I think a common humanity approach is a good one because it does acknowledge that people are different. So it's not this issue of like, I don't see color. I don't see, you know, differences like, no, they're there and they could be racial. They could be ethnic. They could be socioeconomic, you know, whatever it might be, but that there are things that we share in common because we are all humans, we experience the same emotions, you know, um, things of that nature. So the the less divisive you can make it, the better. And so that's just my concern with the critical race theory is if people follow the assumption and they walk into a classroom and they tell students that you are racist by the virtue of your skin color, which schools have done, I see a major problem in that as far as, well, they all still have to go to school together. So, you know, you, this might not be the thing that you want to be doing with these kids (laughs) and work together and go to college together. And, you know, yeah. 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 I wonder if part of the problem then is also the um, amazing slippage in language that we're seeing between Mm -hmm. what I would consider like the old definition of what racism was and that mm-hmm. there's a newer kind of more expansive definition of what racism is. And I see, I, I see a merit to both definitions. Like I, mm-hmm. I think the critical race theorists would say quite rightly that, well, racism can't just mean burning crosses on lawns because people are racist in all sorts of ways, even ways they don't know about. But then again, there's some merit to that earlier definition. Like if you see racism mm-hmm. everywhere, you might mm-hmm. want to think of a more restrictive way to, to think about this term. 
Um, but maybe part of the problem is if, if, you know, if schools are saying to kids, like, look, you're racist, mm -hmm. are they going through, like, what does that mean? Because obviously, you know, most people are trained into that earlier version. Like, oh my God, you're saying that mm -hmm. I like have these legit prejudices against all these people. And it sounds mm -hmm. in the school is probably meaning it more like the way Robin D'Angelo means it, which is that you have racialized ways of thinking that may be very subtle, mm -hmm. but they're there. I wonder, like, would, yeah. would explaining the difference make a difference? Perhaps. Uh, I think that would only work with older kids, but even high schoolers are very self-conscious. They're worried about what people think about them. And so then are they like, well, I'm just not going to talk anymore because now I'm worried that, you know, my classmates are going to think that everything I say is, you know, because I'm racist or, you know, whatever. But I mean, if you're telling young kids like early elementary that they, and I don't know that this, you know, I have no idea the extent to which this is actually even happening if it is, but young kids that you are racist by virtue of your skin color, like, are they, I mean, are we really going to say that a child is born racist? Like I, I don't, I mean, there really, there would need to be some evidence, some pretty conclusive evidence on that yeah. to bring that into preschool, for example. That, you know, it's, I remember seeing evidence and I saw it indirectly and it was like 10 years ago. So I don't even know how valid this is, but I remember seeing a report that the data said people aren't so much racist in terms of preferring their own skin type or skin color mm -hmm. or people if you will but they are they tend to develop racial biases towards people that they grow up and live around mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. like if you're a white kid who grows up in a majority black area or a black kid who grows mm -hmm. up in a majority white area you probably won't develop as much prejudice for your own racial group whatever that means mm -hmm. but you will develop more prejudice for the people who look like the people you're used to and I don't know mm -hmm. if that's true. I think I read it in, in some book like about 10 years ago, and it was mm -hmm. maybe a paragraph summary of a study. So I, mm -hmm. I don't know. But um, you're right. I mean, it's worth it's worth figuring out whether that's actually true. Yeah. And, and that's something where you would really have to define the terms, because is that racist in in the I hate people who aren't my skin color way? Or is it just like, I tend to have a preference to people that I'm used to being around or, you well, know, I however that manifests. That, yeah. yeah. That's where I think the line gets really tricky though, because mm -hmm. I know like Claude Steele, for instance, uh, this a psychologist has done, um, has, has talked about what um, I guess he calls. And I, I think claims that a lot of black people call the, um, what is it like when you're on an air, when you're on an airplane, if you're on Southwest and you want to um, make sure the seat next to you is free, sit down as a mm -hmm. black person because no one's going to sit next to you. Um, mm -hmm. I, and I don't know if anyone's mm -hmm. tested things like that, but I mean, mm -hmm. I could imagine mm -hmm. that, you know, even small preferences like that. I, I, I um, you know, it, I, I think uh, Glenn Lowry and, and maybe uh, some other sociologists have talked about, if people tend to get jobs and job recommendations from people in their network and people in their network tend to look like them, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So right. if you are in a majority white employer and you are a black person, it follows that your chances of getting job recommendations through a network is going to be less, mm -hmm, right? So mm -hmm. no one in there is, is being explicitly racist. Like no one in that room is saying, let's not tell the black people about the jobs. Right. Right. But you can understand that that even that basic prejudice can lead to outsized results. Um, but, yeah, does it all the time? You, uh, that, that the other question is, OK, well, it can. But is mm -hmm. the is the solution that that to teach people about the racialized power dynamics, is, is that a, a, a cure that's worse than the disease would be another question mm -hmm. to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I would say that it depends on how you approach it. Um, because, you know, I think students that are in high school, for example, that are preparing to go to college and then the workforce, like, 
you know, they should be made aware of these things. And I think that's like the whole thing with social capital. Like, how do you get into networks that are going to give you the um, outcome that you want? Um, But I just don't think it needs to be raised in a way that's like, yeah, uh, ignites those tribal circuits. Right. I mean, it sounds like the common humanities approach you're advocating for probably has tools to address those mm-hmm. things as well. It seems like it's almost more a matter of degree than either do it or don't do it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. Yeah. And I just, yeah, I'm just worried. And again, this is like all news headings. I don't work for any of these school districts. I don't know how this is actually playing out, but it's right. just like the things you hear, you're like, okay, you're not doing this right. I don't know if it's a lack of professional development or what's going on, or if people are just being reactionary, like, the death of George Floyd. We've got to do something about it. Here's what we're going to do. Um, but whatever it is, people well, need, yeah. Like, you know, companies and organizations are more brand conscious because everything they do mm-hmm. is seen by other people. So like, would this have taken place and taken root as fast and as, as much in the 1980s? Uh, we mm-hmm. didn't have social media. That would be interesting to like do a thought experiment on. Yeah. Yeah. So what's so what's next for you in terms of uh, writing and and whatnot? What do you what do you have in the works? Uh, so I've there was Jonathan Haidt. I don't know a few years ago. Anyway, he gave an address somewhere that talked about the telos, so the purpose of higher education, and should it be truth or social justice? Can it be both? You know, he kind of debated these questions. And so that's what I had when you and I were emailing back and forth about the podcast episode you did about the purpose of schooling. So I have been, um, yeah, drafting an article of like the different purposes over time, the K through 12, and then the introduction of social justice. Can they, how will they conflict with each other? Should one be prioritized over the other? Which one should it be? You know, uh, things like that. So that's mostly what I'm working on now, as well as <clears throat> for Substack doing kind of, I've done two interviews now with, with people that I'm going to type up and put on there about how they view education and what it means to be educated. And then one of them is a heterodox Academy member. So for him, what does it mean to be a heterodox teacher in a high school? Cool. So, so how much is it to subscribe to your Substack? So it is $5 a month, $30 a year. Uh, Substack requires you to do at least $5 a month. So I recently learned that. I was going to say um, that seems to be the standard price for most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the lowest, so you have to do $5 a month, and then the lowest you could do for a year is $30. And so that's how I've done it. Um, so it's obviously significantly cheaper to do the year. Um, but so far, I've been putting them all open to the public. So anyone can get them, you know, to try to get some traction before, you know, yeah, to yeah, see. Yeah, it. yeah. So people will read my stuff and then decide if it's worth it to pay <laughs> to to read. Right. Well, well, right. And even if it's not behind a paywall, if you like it, you're mm-hmm. supporting someone in their work, right? You're making it so right. that you don't have to get a an institutional job that locks you in somewhere. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, those listeners, viewers who like what uh, what Samantha has said, uh, I encourage you to check out her Substack, Samantha Hedges. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, it was great talking to you. Thank you. See you.